Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is the first of a two-part episode that we are doing on lady detectives on television. Because when we did our past episodes not too long ago on the Golden Girls and women of a certain age, we heard from listeners about women of a certain age who are also crime solvers. That's right. A whole other TV genre with which, I don't know, I'm I'm pretty familiar. I grew up watching all sorts of amazing lady crime fighter shows with my mother. Caroline and I learned that we both have a shared love for Jessica Fletcher. That's right. Of Murder, She Wrote. That's right. Hence the title of this podcast, Murder, She Watched. Yeah, she uh, Jessica Fletcher, both fierce and comforting. Yeah, and she also rides her bike around. She's got pretty cool style. I mean, honestly, today, if you wore what J.B. Fletcher wears, you'd, you'd fit right into maybe a cool party. Right, normcore, man. With those, Whatever with, that is. With those big glasses. <laughs> but we ended up making this. A two-parter, not only because this, you could just call this our, our Christmas present to you or whatever holiday you choose to celebrate, but also because once we started researching women detectives, this whole TV genre, and just really focusing in on TV, on the small screen, mm-hmm. we uncovered so much information. Yeah, uh, there, it's, it's not just about the women who were on television who were starring in these shows. It's about where they came from. I mean, these lady detective characters have a long and amazing history, um, of coming up through literature and then when they transition over to the, the small screen. It's interesting to see how they develop through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into today, now that I sound like a a radio announcer. But uh, there's also so much to talk about in terms of femininity and masculinity in these shows about sexual violence, uh, the issue of, uh, you know, do shows like SVU use rape as entertainment? There's just, it's, it's more than just talking about Jessica Fletcher. Although we could have just made this about Jessica Fletcher because Lord knows Caroline and I could just riff on and on about her and her adventures in Cabot Cove. That's right. But we are also focusing in on TV because it's women crime solvers in this particular genre who are the ones making these really significant milestones in terms of actually seeing women in lead roles mm-hmm. on television. But long before Law & Order SVU came around and Mariska Hargitay stole all of our hearts, for sure, we need to mention where fictional women detectives get their start. And before we dive into this, I will say that I would love to do a follow-up podcast at some point on women detectives in literature. Oh, yeah. Because that is where they come from. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, we're going to talk mostly about TV. But first, we have to talk about the women in the books. Yeah. So this is coming from uh, a great article in The Telegraph back in November of 2014. Um But the history of fictional lady detectives goes all the way back to the 1860s when we see the first books featuring professional, not just amateur, but professional female detectives as the heroine. And these two that we're about to mention remained the only such books for about 20 years. Yeah, there was sort of a proto 
a sleuth character who popped up in 1841 in Catherine Crew's The Adventures of Susan Hopley. But like you said, it wasn't until the 1860s that we have actual female detectives. So William Stephen Hayward publishes The Revelations of a Lady Detective, which could also just be the title of this podcast, um, which featured the main character, a widowed Mrs. Pascal, who was featured smoking on the cover. Oh, how titillating. Yes. Um, And around the same time, Andrew Forrester published The Female Detective, which featured Miss Gladden as the main character. And whereas Miss Gladden doesn't reveal much about herself, she, she tends to blend in with her environment, to observe. She works independently and for the police. The smoking and widowed Mrs. Pascal character, uh, she has more of an adventurous spirit. She serves as an undercover agent for the police, and she also investigates her own cases. Miss Pascal is very busy. That's right. And she's just constantly smoking. <laughs> uh, or, or, although I would like to think of Miss Pascal, if she's ever revived in, you know, like a 21st century adaptation, she'd definitely be vaping. Yeah. Um, but unlike Miss Gladden, she does reveal a lot about herself and has a sense of adventure in her own words. From the book, quote, Owing to frequent acquaintance with peril, I have become unusually hardened for a woman. Although I think that also might have to do with the smoking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, there, that literally is hardening your your blood vessels. There could be that. Um, but yeah, this uh, a lot of these insights, too, are coming from Mike Ashley, who wrote an introduction to the new edition of Revelations of a Lady Detective. These books, which were put out in the 1860s, sort of, I mean, they were popular. People liked the tradition of, like, penny dreadfuls and things like that. But they did sort of disappear. It's not like we have constant editions of books like this, like we do with, like, Charles Dickens books or whatever. Um, and so it was sort of a big deal when these books got reissued. But... Ashley actually refers to Mrs. Pascal as the forerunner to both Emma Peel and Sherlock Holmes. And the inspirations for these books are also uh, pretty interesting because the female detective, Miss Gladden's book, written by Andrew Forrester, came about because of Forrester's interest in true crime. Whereas Revelations of a Lady Detective, Miss Pascal's book, was really more of a continuation of the Penny Dreadful tradition, quote, as Mike Ashley wrote, showing that women have every bit as much true grit as their male counterparts. And I will say that's something that we see continue on through these female detectives on TV that we're going to talk about as well. Yeah, exactly. And going back to that quote about Mrs. Pascal calling herself unusually hardened for a woman, that's another trend as far as like questioning whether female detective characters are just being kind of squished into a male role and made to fit that mold or whether they're functioning as just their own type of investigative lady character. But so in the 1880s, just to give you some context, this is when Sherlock Holmes debuts. And on the coattails of Holmes, we see a lot of a lot more uh, lady detective characters coming out. Uh, women like my favorite Mrs. Julia Herlock Sholmes. I wonder who inspired her. I, I can't I can't put my finger on Herlock it. Herlock Sholmes. Huh? Well, there's also Miss Hilda Wade. 
Lady Molly de Mazarin, and Florence Cusack, who I would like to think is uh, the, the fictional ancestor of Joan and John Cusack, perhaps. I, I hope so. Um, but when we move into the 20th century, uh, around the same time, uh, in the late 20s, early 30s, we get Agatha Christie's mystery novels and also Nancy Drew. But it, it was in 1927 that Agatha Christie creates the Miss Marple character, who is a spinsterish amateur detective. She doesn't have children of her own. She kind of functions under this guise of, oh, I'm just a gentle spinstery grandmother just sitting here knitting, but also solving crime. Right, because she she might be quiet and she might fade into the background because people tend to not notice older people around us. But that means that she can observe all sorts of things we might not observe. That's right. And so as we make the transition to TV, it was in 1956 that Miss Marple became a, a TV character for the first time. And it was actually here in the U.S. She was played by Gracie Fields. And then... We see like a, a crossover here, or what will be a crossover. In 1980, Angela Lansbury portrays Ms. Marple. And of course, this character eventually inspires Jessica Fletcher of Murder, She Wrote, who is played by Angela Lansbury. Yeah, and then from 1984 to 1992, Joan Hickson stars in the BBC series of uh, Miss Marple. And she's usually considered everybody's favorite Miss Marple. But speaking of Miss Marple and Jessica Fletcher, another theme that you'll see too, as you really start to focus in on the, the this very particular kind of detective character, the female detective, is that they usually are rather spinsterish. Mm-hmm. They're often, you know, they they often have no children. They might have a romance on the side, maybe, but usually they're single. They're kind of you know, these islands unto themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, when you look back at Mrs. Pascal, for instance, so she's a middle-aged widow and she smokes. Uh, and I think that goes along with the whole thing of like, all right, if you're putting a woman in a non-feminine, non-traditionally female role, you know, she's already transgressing gender norms and social rules and stuff. Like, it wouldn't make sense almost in that time period to make her a married mother, for instance, because, well, that's her role. That's her life. She's a married mother. She's a wife and mother raising her children. Whereas, oh, well, a widow with no kids who's smoking. <laughs> just, I mean, I just love the imagery. People were like, oh, my God, she's smoking on the cover. Um you know, she's already transgressing all of these norms, so she might as well be a, a detective having all sorts of adventures. Yeah, by not giving her that domestic familial role, she actually has time yeah. <laughs> to be a sleuth. All right, and now that we've given you this super amazing and colorful look at Victorian lady detectives in literature, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get into how... The second waivers of second wave feminism helped spawn a whole new generation of lady crime fighters, but this time on television. And now back to the show. We are now going to move out of literature and into television because there is so much to cover. And when you look at the history of women in American television, we are going to focus a lot on U.S. TV It's really women female detectives who are breaking some of the glass ceilings. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in 1957, 
The show Decoy, starring Beverly Garland as undercover cop Casey Jones, premieres. And I did not realize this before researching for this podcast, Caroline. This was the first woman in the history of U.S. television to star in the title role of a full-season dramatic series. Hmm. And to put that in some context and how huge of a deal that still is, between 1940 and 1999, out of 555 dramatic primetime series, just 36 of them starred a woman. Interesting. Yeah, and it was the female detective, the undercover cop, Mm -hmm. who broke the mold. Well, I mean, I think what you're saying to me, what I'm hearing is the exact same thing that we just talked about with Mrs. Pascal's character about, well, if we're going to break boundaries by putting a woman in a starring role on TV... She might as well be in a role that we're, you know, it's just so outside of the the female norm. But by making a lot of these, especially earlier characters, more undercover mm-hmm. than straight PI or detectives, that also lends itself to allowing her to wear more feminine costumes than, say, just a straight cop uniform yeah. or the trench coat right. and fedora. Yes, so she can still function as very feminine Yeah, in a role that is not feminine, traditionally. So let's look first, uh, if we're going chronologically, at Diana Rigg, who starred in The Avengers as Emma Peel. And that show aired from 1961 to 69. It's something I had no idea about. I literally had never thought about before reading this, but all of a sudden it makes so much sense and I'm never going to unhear this. Emma Peel's name came about as shorthand, literally, this is not a joke, for man appeal. They they wanted so badly to maintain the feminine, to maintain, to have this woman in an exciting, adventurous role, but also be super feminine and hot and all that stuff. They wanted her to have a lot of man appeal. So they started out by naming her Samantha Peel. I'm not kidding. And shortened it to Mantha Peel. So it sounds like, yeah. Well, then that was just awkward, right? Because who's named Mantha? Mantha. No, I don't, yeah. No offense to Samantha's listening who go by Mantha, although probably there are none of you. Yeah, probably not. Well, so they eventually abbreviated it as the letter M period appeal. So man appeal, they shortened it to that way. But then the more they said M appeal, M appeal, that makes more sense. We get Emma Peel. That is so much effort to go to. Yeah, no kidding. Who thinks about that? I mean, talk about some subliminal messaging yeah, going seriously. on. But that's such a great example, too, of how not only do we have second wave feminism starting to creep in, but this is also in the context of, you know, Cold War era. Uh, we're really interested and fascinated by um, spy movies and novels and mm-hmm. James Bond and undercover espionage happening. So... Emma Peel really fits all of those things. Yeah. Well, so then we have Anne Francis in the show Honey West from 1965 to 66. And her character was really envisioned as a cross between the hardened male detective character trope and Marilyn Monroe. And she had a pet ocelot. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. In the show or in real life? In the show. Okay. Yeah, she was a swanky dame. And she was inspired initially by Pussy Galore 
in the 007 movies. I see. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then, of course, we have Peggy Lipton and Mod Squad, which was on from 68 to 73. And then a really awesome, important character of Teresa Graves, who starred in Get Christy Love in 1974. I think it was a TV movie and a series. But she was the first African-American woman to star in her own hour-long series. And this was a pretty revolutionary role to be portraying on television because in the political context at the time, you have Title VII of the Civil Rights Act being enforced, which led to police departments having to quit gender discriminating in their hiring practices and bring more women onto their forces. And it's the same kind of thing that we talked about a lot in our fire women women firemen uh, episode. And so this was happening and a lot of people were concerned and not happy with female police officers being mm-hmm. more common. They didn't think that they could protect them as well, enforce crime or enforce, enforce the law as well. So that's happening in the real world. This discomfort with women uh, taking charge in police uniforms. But then you also have you know, civil rights still going on. And so to have a black woman in this role as a cop was almost too much for the mainstream white viewership to handle. So it didn't last very long. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, a pretty significant role to remember. And I wasn't aware that the show existed until this. Although I will say um, the the intro to Get Christy Love is like two minutes long. (laughs) It's so long. And it's just, it's, it's real seventies. It's real seventies. Is it Teresa Graves like running around with a gun, like peeking around corners? Yeah. And her uh, trademark line in it is, you're under arrest, sugar. (laughs) So there's that. (laughs) I love that so much. But going off of what Kristen was just talking about with more and more women being recruited for police forces during this time, we have to talk about Angie Dickinson, who starred in Police Woman from 1974 to 78. And in one source that we were looking at talking about this show in particular, Dickinson was saying how flattered she was that there was this spike in women joining police forces after her show premiered. So... She didn't necessarily take into account the fact that there were a lot of other political and social things going on at the time. Correlation, causation. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect example. But so Angie Dickinson's character in Police Woman was, of course, she's very fashionable. She's very beautiful. She has great hair, all of this stuff. But she has actually said since then that she felt very exploited during the filming of the show, particularly because of things like shower scenes that, you know, why do you need a shower scene? But anyway, she said that she was she's actually very glad to see how the genre has evolved since then. Well, and hers is another example of how she was often in undercover roles that would require her to be in a bikini or in a sexy evening gown or some yeah. kind of highly, you know, feminine and attractive outfit. And it's notable, too, this was something that we were reading about in this book, uh, Hard Boiled and High Heeled, all about uh, fictional women detectives, about how Teresa Graves and Angie Dickinson, you know, both launched their lady detective series at the same time in 1974. But Policewoman was the first successful hour-long primetime TV drama starring a woman, whereas Get Christy Love lasted a season and then was canned. And in Hard Boiled and High Heel, they think that it is largely because of the fact that 
Angie Dickinson was a blonde, white female, often put in these very like feminine costumes. It kind of made the role more palatable, mm-hmm. unfortunately, for viewers at the time. Yeah. Whereas Get Christy Love was almost too too much. Yeah, there was no HBO around at the time that could that had the resources to take chances on shows that weren't as mainstream, you know? Yeah. Like you really had to sort of cater to cater to the viewers and pay attention to the numbers. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that catering to the viewers meant that, you know, you have actresses feeling exploited because they're working unnecessary shower scenes right. in two shows. Exactly. <laughs> and then coming into the 80s, there's Betty Thomas on Hill Street Blues, which was 81 to 87. Heather Locklear uh, on TJ Hooker from 82 to 86. And Holly Robinson Pete on 21 Jump Street, which was uh, airing from 1987 to 91. And she's another one who complained about what was going on on the show at the time. Specifically, Pete complained that there were too many plots that relied on rape, which is something you hear a lot of people still talking about today, not only in terms of shows like SVU, which, of course, has everything to do with sexual assault, rape, things like that, um, but but a lot of shows out there still sort of revolve around using rape and sexual assault as a primary plot device. And Holly Robinson Pete basically took issue with that. And we'll get more into that portrayal of rape in a lot of these shows and how that kind of intersects with the characterizations of these fictional detectives on TV later in the podcast. But now we have to actually step back a little bit in our timeline to focus in on probably the most groundbreaking TV show, primetime TV show, for women detectives on television. And it's not Charlie's Angels. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Although they play a role in what we're about to talk about. They do play a role. But we've got to talk about Cagney and Lacey, which aired from 1981 to 1988. And its history, its televisual history, is fascinating because it I mean there's there's so much let's I won't, I won't even preface it with anything let's just dive in yeah and what's so great about the story of Cagney and Lacey is the fact that it is so much a product of its time there is so much super fascinating social and political history that is affecting the show and so this is coming from the AV Club's story on Cagney and Lacey which was a great read but they talk about how back in 1974, TV producer Barney Rosenzweig has this epiphany while he's out on a date with a young feminist writer, Barbara Corday. They were seeing scent of a woman, and Rosenzweig realizes through Corday's eyes that the female characters in the movie are totally objectified and treated like crap. And so he encourages Babs, Barbara, Barbara Corday, and her writing partner, Barbara Avedon, to a, a team of Babses to come up with something like to come up with their own more you know female empowered plot line and so they write a screenplay for Cagney and Lacey featuring two career driven women who caught bad guys and fought sexism at the same time but the project was never made yeah and so of course you have to take into account the context the the political and social backdrop of the time a realistic straightforward woman-led cop show just did not appeal to network suits in the 70s because that's too gritty it's too unfeminine they should be glamorous like wonder woman or 
like Charlie's Angels. Yeah, Rosenzweig actually worked on Charlie's Angels, which was created by Aaron Spelling. And it was a huge hit, obviously, and did open the door just enough for a more serious show like Cagney and Lacey about two female detectives, not necessarily running off to glamorous locales and being directed by um, just a, a voice <laughs> of, a, of a very wealthy man. Um, and Rosenzweig did actually work on Charlie's Angels, which was created by Aaron Spelling. And it was a huge hit, obviously. And it's notable that it did feature... Three women with fantastic hair <laughs> who work together to take on evil male characters. And so a lot of people see Charlie's Angels as a positive example of women on television. Although you could make arguments on both sides yeah. of that. But nonetheless, Charlie's Angels opened the door network wise just enough because it was so successful that allowed a more serious show about two female detectives actually working in an office, going out on the streets, mm-hmm. fighting daily sexism that other women watching would encounter in the real world uh, to finally get into development. Yeah. And so in 1981, the team gets a Cagney and Lacey made for TV movie on the air. And Rosenzweig, he must have really benefited from going on that date with Corday back in the day because he ended up promoting the show to Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine which then turned around and featured the show's leads on their October 1981 cover. Gloria Steinem was so excited about this show to the point where she went on Donahue with one of the lead actresses, not Tyne Daly, but Loretta Swit, who we'll talk about in a minute, went on Donahue with this woman, and they both talked about the show so earnestly. I can't remember who was talking about it. Like, they talked about it as if you're going on and talking about war. But these two women went on, and they're like, this is an incredible show, and Gloria Steinem obviously threw her weight behind it, and it ended up... A attracting 42% of American TVs the night it aired, which resulted in CBS ordering six full episodes. Now, one of the reasons, though, why the TV movie, Cagney and Lacey, was so popular was not only because Gloria Steinem probably rallied a lot of female viewers and it got a lot of press at the time, but also because Cagney, being played opposite Tyne Daly, was being played by Loretta Swit, who was on M.A.S.H., which was wildly popular as well. So she brought some, you know, some name mm-hmm. cachet to yeah. the role as well. But she had to keep pl- going. She had to go back to MASH. So she couldn't be on the television show version of it. So the early episodes feature Meg Foster as Cagney, whose, quote, energy was considered too similar to Tyne Daly's hard driving energy as Lacey. And a lot of the TV criticism at the time really just hated Meg Foster's face, let's be honest. They thought that she looked too masculine, and especially both Tyne Daly and Meg Foster. You can Google image them, and I, I recommend you do it, because there is such a shift from the look of Meg Foster to Sharon Gless, who we would think of today as um, Cagney. But they, I think the, the two of them together in police uniforms just was a little too masculine. Yeah, uh People in general, critics especially, definitely thought there needed to be a more feminine presence opposite Tyne Daly. They were okay with there being like one hard driving, more masculine, more serious character, but there needed to be some sort of blonde, bubbly 
uh, foil for her. And so before we have the shift and when Meg Foster was still playing Cagney, in one early episode, the two dress up as prostitutes to nab a bad guy as a way of being like, hey, look, they're in dresses with high heels. They're totally feminine. Look at all this eyeshadow. There was so much eyeshadow. <laughs> so much. Now, not everybody was thrilled about Cagney and Lacey, particularly the portrayal of two women doing police work. And we found this quote from Robert J. Thompson's television's second golden age. And he writes, they, Cagney and Lacey, were too harshly women's lib. The American public approves of women getting the same play for some jobs, but the public doesn't respond to the bra burners, the fighters, the women who insist on calling manhole covers people hole covers, which, side note, made me laugh out loud when I read it. These women on Cagney and Lacey seemed more intent on fighting the system than doing police work. We perceive them as, insert derogatory word for lesbians. Yeah, people, yeah, I think people who had sort of been spoon-fed shows like uh, Police Woman or Charlie's Angels didn't know how to handle mentally a show about two women who were actually, like, serious police officers and detectives. But if we look at some character notes, Sharon Gless, who Kristen mentioned earlier, she eventually comes on board as Cagney, and this sparks this great chemistry that we know today as being such a big part of Cagney and Lacey. And interestingly, Lacey's husband, Tyne Daly's husband, Harvey, was really the one domestic presence on the show. He's the one who cooked and took care of the kids while the wife was out running around doing police work. Yeah, she was a full-time working mom, and then... Cagney was a single woman mm-hmm. on the show, which I'm sure was also a, a rather revolutionary pairing to see as well. And one thing we haven't mentioned is that in the process of the show being on the air from 1981 to 1988, the network tried to cancel it two times unsuccessfully. Yeah. And finally, then the third time <laughs> stuck. But uh, one of the writer's notes said that out of 125 episodes, quote, an amazingly high percentage of them have women involved in the writing process, even when compared to most dramas today. Yeah. And so it's probably part of the reason why Gloria Steinem, for instance, uh, wrote a cover piece for TV Guide on why Cagney and Lacey is the best show on television. Uh, they wanted Gloria Steinem to make a guest appearance on the show because the plot line involved Cagney and Lacey having to go to this Equal Rights Amendment uh, rally, I think, and they were going to have to actually protect a Phyllis Shafley type character who in real life was this arch conservative enemy of uh, second wave feminism who said with all sorts of awful things about women and equal rights and uh, Steinem demurred. She she didn't show up. Uh-huh. On the, yeah, she didn't want to be on the show, I guess, yeah. for whatever reason. Well, she did love it, though. She did love it. Oh, absolutely. So, Caroline, we could go on and on and on, though, about Cagney and Lacey, because honestly, I had no idea up until this point how significant this show was to this entire genre. No idea. I had no idea about the background information about the writers, that there were not only so many women writers, but that the show was helmed by two incredible women. Yeah. And to the point, though, that there's even an entire book that we have been citing devoted to this called Defining Women Television and the Case of Cagney and Lacey by Julie Diaz. And just that very, the existence of that, once I saw that, I realized that 
wow, there's so much more to the show than just amazing, uh, you know, bow blouses. Academia, man. There, There's a book out there for everything. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but now it's time for us to put a pin in our Lady Detective conversation because we've got so much more to talk about. But now we want to hear from listeners about their favorite classic female detectives on television, or if there were some lady detectives from literature that they especially loved as well. Write to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address, and we've got a couple of letters to share with you right now. So I've got one here from Monica on our episode about women in Ebola. And she writes, thank you so much for your podcast on women and Ebola and for adding the humanity back to the debate on this horrible disease. It was also wonderful to hear you portray the West African women who are affected by the disease as people with agency, women who, despite the huge challenges, are making do the best they can with limited resources. One thing I would mention, there's been a lot of talk about West African burial rituals as if this were some exotic, foreign, awful thing. It's not. The burial rituals in question are simply the washing of the body, which is exactly what is done here in the U.S., but just by an undertaker or another professional. So not scary, not foreign, not some sort of voodoo ritual that these silly Africans are doing and then getting infected. Since 2008, I've spent significant time in Sierra Leone, mostly supporting women journalists, training them and helping them adapt new technology to get information to those who don't have it, generally rural women and girls. They are smart, sassy women, not just the journalists, and they don't need an NGO to go in and preach to them. They need the information so that they can make their own decisions on their lives and their health. Literacy rates in Sierra Leone are about 30% and much lower for women and girls. The vast majority of people get their news from radios, both national broadcasters and community radio stations. And radio has played a very important role in getting information to the population in times of crisis. Just another note about Sierra Leone. These are the most fearless, resilient, and friendly people I have ever met. Sierra Leone is a beautiful country, and I have some close friends there who have suffered more than anyone has ever deserved to suffer. When you mention pregnant women being turned away from hospitals, that's a regular occurrence, even in the best of times. Very, very few women give birth in hospitals. A friend of mine there delivered a baby five weeks early. We drove her around to every hospital in the capital, Freetown, and none of them had a working incubator. The child died after several days, and he was not the first baby she had lost. As we focus on Ebola, more people are actually dying of preventable and curable diseases in Sierra Leone, like typhoid, malaria, and even seemingly not serious infections. Just imagine, for instance, dealing with a UTI and having no antibiotics. Keep up the good work, Monica. And thank you so much, Monica, for your photos. She sent some incredible photos from her time in Sierra Leone and also offering those really important insights. Okay, I have a letter here from Alessandra, who works with the United Nations Foundation. She says, in light of your recent podcast on Ebola and women, I wanted to share some fascinating information I came across this summer from a small roundtable held at the UN Foundation with a returned World Health Organization communications emergency responder who had been in Liberia for several weeks early in the crisis. Her role in Liberia was to assist the World Health Organization in spreading internal prevention and care information within Liberia and externally reporting back to the WHO and the world at large about the situation. She talked about many roadblocks 
than trying to execute her job. For example, the difficulty with the actual delivery of their message. Liberia's population is still staggeringly illiterate, so for many, reading the information was out of the question. As poor education and illiteracy disproportionately affect women, I imagine that would contribute to a higher rate of women being affected. Furthermore, newspapers in Liberia, and indeed in many parts of Africa, do not work the same way they do in the West. There, if you want something in the newspaper, you have to pay to have it printed. This results in news not being included for its merit or integrity, but for commercial gain. The WHO, with their limited resources, has been hesitant to enter into paying for such a corruptible information distribution source, but scammers who falsely claim to have a cure have been paying for such newspaper coverage. Thus, that leaves radio as a hopeful method for disseminating information to remote villages who were disproportionately affected by the outbreak. Even then, there are so many local dialects that you cannot have one broadcast that would be able to communicate with all these villages. Instead, they use radio to contact village leaders and spokespeople and rely on them to educate their neighbors. Finally, she talked about the willful disbelief in Ebola in the region. While there are a few who think it's a conspiracy, most people believe it exists but don't want to acknowledge it on their doorstep. If you have a family member who gets sick with symptoms that might be Ebola but might, perhaps wishfully, also be malaria, many people would rather believe that it's malaria and continue to foster hope. To admit that it's Ebola is essentially to commit your family member to death. You are no longer able to nurse them or keep them as close for fear of contamination to the whole family, and without many hospitals having room to take in patients, you're forced to helplessly watch. As a mother, can you imagine admitting you have to stop doing anything you can as the main caregiver for your child? Just thought I'd share this inside scoop. Thanks for the podcast. And thank you so much, Alessandra. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with all of our sources so you can read along with us, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 